Welcome to episode 76 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called JJ. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Hi, you guys! Hi! Oh boy, I know it's been a while um, since we last recorded, since things have sort of been completely upended on both Kelly and my ends. Um, Mm -hmm. So, let us catch ourselves up to speed. How are you, Kelly? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I seem to have developed a lisp all of a sudden. Um, Like... (laughs) what is even the English? Um, I'm good. I'm pretty tired. I've been traveling more or less nonstop in the the entire month of October. So I think the last time Kelly updated us, um, I, you know, I lost my laptop. That was number one, which never fear y'all. I have a laptop now. Um, Mm -hmm. I was working on revisions and I more or less just started traveling entirely after that, which is kind of the reason, at least on my end, that we didn't have a chance to record. Um, So Kelly, why Mm -hmm. don't you fill us in on what's been going on with you? Wow. Um, A lot. It's been busy on this end, too. Um, I've got more projects out on sub and gearing up for some others. I crash read a manuscript to offer a representation to someone and then I lost them. They signed with someone else. Actually, she signed with your agent. Oh, Um, (laughs) but I don't. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) It's, it's totally understandable. Um, you know, I'm sure she made the best choice for her and, and that's really, um, all that anybody can do, you know? So, but I, but, but dealing with that was, was tough. That was my first kind of time that I extended uh, an offer to someone and was turned down. So it was good. Keeps me humble. And, um, and so that's been going on. I also, for the entire month of October was teaching an online class from the loft literary on queries. And that was a really intensive workshop, um, that I did. So I got that squared away. And then I've got a bunch of conferences coming up in, the winter and the next couple of months. So it's been busy over here too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, as soon as we finish recording this, I have to finish packing for y'all fest and also finish going through first pass of shadow song, uh, which I need to like turn in like ASAP. <laughs> um, cause I, cause I've been traveling I mean, I, I had brought my computer. So I, the past two weeks I've been in Asia. I went to Shanghai and kind of some of the surrounding areas around Shanghai. And I also went to Seoul, which is, uh, where my mom's family is from. So, uh, two weeks abroad and I thought, okay, you know, some downtime or whatever, I'll bring my computer and I will have time to work. Well, my friends, (laughs) um, well, the first one is that China is actually bans all social media and also Google. So I had no access to email. Uh, (laughs) um, so that was great. All social media is banned and people are like, Oh, why you didn't travel with a VPN? And I was like, uh, to be honest, I didn't think I'd need to. Um, so no work got done in China as despite my best intentions. And then I got to Korea and Korea was a little bit different as well because I was meeting with family there. 
So that took up a lot of time and social obligations. And I've just written off being able to write on planes or being able to work Mm -hmm. on planes, even though it would have been an ideal time to work simply because it's a 12 hour flight going over to Asia from LA because I was in LA and it was a 10 and a half hour flight coming back from Asia. I could have worked, but I just passed out instead. So (laughs) passed out and watched um, a couple of movies, which we can talk about in the later part of the podcast. Anyway, so that's kind of an update on what is going on in our lives. We missed y'all. Mm-hmm. It's not like we forgot you. Yeah. And we missed each other too. I know. We haven't caught up in so long. I know. We, we honestly, <laughs> Kelly and I do use our podcast recording nights to catch up with each other as well. <laughs> um, so it's just kind of been a long time where we haven't really been in contact. Like we'll text back and forth, but like mm-hmm. being in contact with each other as often as we had been while we've been recording just wasn't possible at that point. So, yeah. so it's nice to see Kelly's face via Skype, um, and to talk to you guys again. So we mm-hmm. had put out the call for questions earlier. I think we got a couple and I think we had like one that came in over the hiatus too. Okay. It's a whole new world after our hiatus, you guys. Like, there's 280 characters on Twitter now. I know. I know. Okay. So I've got one that came in in October over the hiatus here. And this one is from Emily. And she says, Is querying for picture books different from querying from, for middle grade, young adult, or adult? Um, And the short answer to that is, yes, it's different. As for the details as to how, I don't represent picture books, so I'm not fully caught up on that. You'll want to go, when you're researching agents and you find agents that are going to represent picture books, they'll have their submission guidelines. I think most often um, they just request the full text because Mm -hmm. picture book text is so much more limited. Um, But, you know, it will be different um, what you'll need to provide will be different and really just going to the agent submission guidelines is going to be the best way to find out what you need to provide. Yeah. As with all before you query at all, you need to research clearly, uh, not only the agent's guidelines, but the genre in which you're writing, because picture books are very, very, very specific. And the more you know about picture books, the easier it will be when you submit a query. Because you, you'll you probably figure out, or if you just look around and you've been writing picture books long enough, you'll understand that there is a strict word count limit to picture books. Um, sometimes you can have author illustrators, but that's not actually that common. Most of the time, illustrators will be assigned. Um or the agent will help you find an illustrator. It's it's a little bit more of a collaborative process than anything else. Um, I also think picture books are one of the hardest things in the world to write. I honestly think that the yep. younger you go in age, the harder the books are to write. Uh, picture books are extremely difficult. Um, so I would do as much research beforehand and just to get have as much knowledge about the industry, what sort of books get published, all the technical guidelines and parameters, all of that will make it easier when you query a picture book. Um, but also, the, you know, as Kelly said, the short answer is that, yes, it's different. And 
The long answer is it's still a query. <laughs> the yeah. longer answer is it's still a query, so it still has to adhere to all the other rules queries have to adhere to. You need to talk about your work. You need to talk about, you need to be able to pitch it and sell it to whoever you're querying and all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, but unfortunately, I've, I've only done very limited work with picture books as it was not something that my house published. I worked on a lot of image-heavy books, like craft books, but not actual picture books. And the audience is different, and the publishing is different, even if some of the technical stuff is the same. Because, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, it's a very image-heavy production process. And the different types of books, like whether it's paper over board or something else, those are also different as well. So as the more informed you're all, the more informed you are, the better off you will be. Of course, this is a Ravenclaw talking. I believe that applies to every situation unilaterally. So I mean, it's pretty safe advice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we had a couple of other questions come in today. Uh, if I can find them. <laughs> That would be great. Oh, I've got them. They're on your original tweet from this morning. Okay. Let's see. All right. We have one from Margaret Torres, and she asks, How do you tighten up your writing? How do you condense each sentence, each paragraph, to be the most powerful? Uh, well, that is a question I would like answered as well, as that is a problem with me. I tend to <laughs> write overly long, so that is a <laughs> that is something that I have to work on, and I definitely know that. Um, the first piece of advice I can give is you read you read your work aloud. Mm -hmm. That's what I was going to say too, and that is exactly what I am doing right now because I'm working on the first pass of Shadow Song, and during this stage, I really do actually read every single word aloud. And when you do so, you will hear when things get too long, when sentences run on too long and it breaks up the rhythm, or when it um, sounds monotonous. That's the other thing. I'll, often when you tighten writing, it's... Tightening writing is not necessarily shortening every sentence, although that is, that is true. I think really great writing has variation in rhythm, in length, mm -hmm. and it sounds... I, I do pay attention to a lot of that when I write. So I tend to listen for that, and I, my initial sentences tend to be very long and rambling. And through every revision edits, I do actually read significant portions of my drafts aloud as I'm writing as well, just to hear it read aloud. Because even if it sounds pretty in my head, it may actually sound completely incomprehensible when read aloud. So that's kind of my best advice. But also, like, condensing your writing is is variation, too. Because you don't want short, punchy sentences all the time. Because you have a series of short, punchy sentences, and it just starts to become noise. And you don't notice right. anything. So uh, variation is actually pretty key, I think. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. I think, too, a lot of it is about um, clarity, which is something that JJ and I talk about a lot. But I think that reading aloud can also help you with this. Sometimes um, writers who 
enjoy crafting prose and enjoy playing with language will sometimes give you, they'll say the same thing in a lot of different ways, Mm -hmm. kind of over and over again. And when you read that aloud, you can kind of hear like, oh, I've already described this a couple times on this page and I'm just, I just keep describing it differently, but I really only need to describe it once. Or, you know, how many times does a character need to say this thing? You can kind of hear those things too. And I think tightening, tightening up writing can also be about um, eliminating redundancies Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of making things more clear. Um, But in terms of like how to do it, I think reading aloud is uh, the number one advice that I would give you. Uh, Reading other people's work, just reading in general and paying attention to the way that language flows. Um, You know, a pithy answer would be, you know, composing tweets will help you, but that's not true anymore because now they've made them all 280 characters. So, (laughs) And here's the thing about 280 characters. I kind of understand why they did it, but it also people who use all 280 characters, it becomes in a giant wall of text and that's really hard to read. And I often scan it anymore. You can't scan it anymore. So often, not that. It's not that the principle applies one-to-one in writing books, but there is something to be said about a giant wall of text in either a book or tweet that people tend to skim, people tend to read over or just miss details because it just becomes just impenetrable, I think. So, again, as we said, read aloud. And I like that Kelly said redundancies, because that is something that often happens when people don't read aloud or the redundancies that happen in text. I also draw a distinction between repetition for emphasis and Hmm. redundancy, because I am somebody who likes repetition for emphasis. I like the musicality of that. But redundancy is, as Kelly said, just kind of describing the same thing seven different ways when you really should have been a better editor and picked the best way of the seven to describe what you were trying to say. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of another way to tighten up and condense your paragraphs. Okay. So do you have the next question? I do. This one is from Andrea Cody and she says, how soon after the start of a book Do you think the inciting incident should happen? I'm currently drafting fantasy and want the world to feel grounded before the upheaval, but worry the action is not happening fast enough. Okay, so having read a lot, a lot, a lot of opening chapters in the last year and read a lot of manuscripts um, that I've requested, if you think that your inciting incident isn't happening fast enough, you're probably right. And I believe strongly that it is important to show us the character's life before everything changes so that we can understand the impact of the change. But I think that, you know, you can do that in a paragraph, you can do that in a chapter, you can do that, you know, over time, depending that there is no official right point at which your inciting incident should happen. But I think that writers become, especially in genre fiction, become too preoccupied with setting the stage 
and they waste a lot of time on this setup and nothing is happening and it feels like we're treading water and we're just getting bogged down in the details of this world when really you should tell your story walking, which is you should introduce introduce us to your characters, um, get into the, you know, the, the, their lives and who they are and fill in the details about the world as you go. Don't, like spend all this time in your opening chapter, like walking us around this fantasy village, pointing out this is the magical wizard shop and this is where the evil witch lives. And this is like, don't spend all this time setting things up for us so that you can knock down all those dominoes later. Do it as you're going, fill it in as your story is moving. Um, so I think, you know, obviously I haven't read your book. I don't know what your inciting incident is or when it happens. But if you're sitting here and you're worried about the fact that you think that it isn't happening fast enough, I'm going to go ahead and say that you're probably right. Yeah. I would say that if you're looking for a hard and fast rule, your inciting incident cannot happen, cannot or not cannot. Obviously, rules are meant to be broken. But if you're looking for a pretty good guideline, your inciting incident really shouldn't happen any later than the end of the second pair end of the second chapter. Yeah. I would say give yourself two chapters to set up the stakes and then but you have to change them by the end of the second chapter. Otherwise, you really should be able to condense it. I think there's I think you have to sort of look at your work mm-hmm. critically and say why do I need all of this information up front? Yeah. What parts this do I need to I know now? This is why I don't like prologues, too. Yeah. Because I, I honestly feel that with, a, with only a very few exceptions, most of the information that you get in prologues, you should be able to give us in the story proper. And if you can't, then it's like, why? I see prologues that sometimes set a mood that are more, like, atmospheric. Um but prologues that give like a huge, like here's the the last 12 years worth of history for everything that's ever happened until now. And now is when our story starts. I'm kind of like, well, why aren't you giving me that information in the story itself? It just seems like a, a cheat to get in this information that people can't figure out how to get in elsewhere. Yeah. I think prologues are tricky simply because I used to be like Kelly and that I was pretty anti-prologue because of the same things that I saw, which were, the prologue was, here's everything that I cannot integrate into the body of my manuscript, so it's all going in the prologue. And at which point you're kind of like, was this actually necessary? Or mm. is this just sort of like the appendices in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings? Like, is this, you know, he put all that stuff in the appendices because he's, you know, he's a person. He had it. He had it not? and yeah. he liked to, you know, do that. But it, we didn't need to know any of that stuff for the narrative of Lord of the Rings and therefore it wasn't in it. Um, there are times when I've realized that prologues could be a necessity because the biggest example was actually Melina Marchetta's Finnegan of the Rock for me. Most, mm. oh yeah, most books tend to open, most ebooks rather, most ebooks tend to start at chapter one and skip the prologue, which is the, which is what happened to me because I had the ebook of Finnegan of the Rock and I was utterly lost, like actually <laughs> completely utterly lost. And then I discovered maybe about 
kind of halfway through the second chapter, oh my gosh, there's actually a prologue here. And I started from there and I was like, oh, everything makes sense now. Um, but it also doesn't make sense to start the story at the moment of the prologue in this book either. Just to spoil everything, this is essentially the story of a refugee people trying to make their way back home. But without knowing what happened 10 years before to their homeland, then you kind of just are like, well, what what do these people want? Why do they want it? And she kind of needed to set that up. She needed to show it to us in order for mm-hmm. it to make sense going forward for to have this baseline understanding that pins beneath the entire rest of the book. So in a situation like that, I would absolutely say that, yes, a prologue is probably useful. Um, Mm -hmm. My own book, Winter Song, I actually initially did not have a prologue. Mine is one of those moody, atmospheric prologues because, like, Kelly, I had this, like, knee-jerk, I don't need one! Uh, (laughs) uh, Because mine actually literally just started at chapter one. um, Mm -hmm. And based on some feedback that my editor had gotten from everybody else, they were like, you know, I think we need to be a little bit clearer about what her relationship with the Goblin King is before the story opens. So, you know, something, it's just something like a flashback or a dream sequence or something like that, but it didn't quite work for me. So I wrote kind of a fairy tale instead and it was very short. That prologue's like 400 words. It's not very long at all. Yeah. But that was kind of what I felt like was enough to kind of set the mood of the book. Uh, for Shadow Song, for instance, because this is a sequel, but it's not necessarily like continuing a story. It's actually a whole new story from Winter Song. I don't have a prologue per se, but I have a series of letters that sort of bridge what happens between the end of Winter Song, kind of sort of recaps for you what happens in Winter Song, and then sets the stage. For the, fo- for the next part of the book that follows. This is not exactly a prologue, but it's also not chapter one. These are just letters yeah. that kind of set the stage for you. And things... And almost you would say that the inciting incident comes at the end of this series of letters. So... But it still happens... In- the inciting incident still happens pretty quickly. It happens... Yeah. Like, like I said, actually almost before the events of the book opens so Mm -hmm. you know prologues and having all this information in the beginning as kelly says if you think it's taking too long for the story to get going your gut is probably saying is probably telling you correctly so maybe be critical about the first two chapters of your book and if the inciting incident does not happen by the end of the second chapter i would rethink or you know maybe maybe just be like okay maybe this information can be relayed elsewhere or in this manner in a more active manner than just sort of spending time in this place okay um did we have any other questions do we have i don't know granted i have not checked the email in a long time so (laughs) there's been nothing in the email really I don't know if we had any old comments on anything. Okay, so here is one that I'm not going to read directly, but I am going to summarize a little bit. And this person wants to know, um, first of all, how you read for blurbs. How do you decide that you're going to give a blurb to something if you read it. Um, and you know, when do you decide not to and, and how do blurbs work in general? 
And that's a good question for you because I know you've read books for blurbs, right? I have. So in my instance, my policy is basically if to have all blurbs sort of floated through my agent or my editor, unless you know me directly, in which case that is a little bit different and that's a little bit more of a friend thing rather than a professional thing. All, almost all blurb requests have come to me through my agent or my editor, which is generally the, the policy that I like for a couple of reasons, partially because I like if I don't like the book or if I don't really feel comfortable giving a blurb, I can sort of relay those thoughts through those intermediaries, my agent and my editor. It is a little bit more awkward if it's someone with whom I have more direct contact, like a friend or a acquaintance that I know personally that I've met or something like that. Uh, I do have requests like those. And in those cases, if I, a lot of times, to be completely frank, I don't necessarily have time to give a blurb. I'm too busy doing other things and reading as much as I love to read is kind of my off valve right now. And sometimes reading blurbs, reading for blurbs really is reading for work, even if I would have picked up those books for pleasure at any other time. On the other hand, so sometimes there are excuses that I give that are basically like, I'm so sorry, I just did not have time. Because, I mean, as Kelly and I have relayed to you, the past six weeks, she and I have been ridiculously busy. So I have not really read very much in that time unless they were audiobooks of which, I, which I have read a couple. Um, and if it's a friend of yours and you don't really like it, depending on the level of your friendship, you can, exp you can kind of say that. I think my very close friends also though, my close friends would kind of know what kind of books I would like, would or would not like, <laughs> if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, and I, and I know that this process is intensely political. It really is. Um, you're yeah. always trying to manage and navigate relationships. Um, you don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Um, so most of the time I tend to just sort of answer blurb requests with, sure, I would love to take a look, but I can't necessarily guarantee a blurb. That's all I say, you know, and that's the truth, to be honest. Like, I would love to take a yeah. look, but I can't guarantee anything. And that sort of leaves me an out, I think, for kind of being like, okay. Now, if it is a friend of yours and they're kind of bugging you about it, I think that might be sometimes something that you should talk to your friend about being like, you know, or, you know, it could be also that you you can give a blurb, you know, kind of a generic one. This is all like... Not inside baseball per se, but this is like publishing like 601. This is like really, yeah. really, really once you're like in the industry itself. There could be an entire separate podcast about how to manage being published because that's completely <laughs> different from getting uh -huh. published. They're like two yep. different experience. They're two entirely different universes in many ways. Um, but it, I think it's just use your own best judgment because publishing once you are published and once you are a published author is just kind of a business of managing relationships and mm. however you want to manage that relationship is up to you so it's kind of the best advice i can give yeah yeah uh all right i think that's probably our last question yeah so let's move on what have we been reading i have actually read 
a number of books. Great. You can make it up for me. (laughs) (laughs) I have to go back and try to remember them all because there's actually been um, quite a few. Most recently, last week, I just read Dear Martin by Nick Stone, Mm. um, which um, is a fantastic book. It took me a little bit to like get into the groove of it. Um, it's not quite an epistolary novel, but the whole, you know, dear Martin conceit is there's this, um, young black teenager who is working on this personal, um, project for himself to help, you know, figure out who he is and who he wants to be. And he kind of processes those thoughts, um, through writing letters to Martin Luther King Jr. And so there are letters throughout the book. Um, and then there's also, you know, just kind of normal, um, you know, third person prose. And then sometimes dialogue scenes will be, um, written out like screenplays. Like it will say the character's name and then colon and then the dialogue. So it's kind of this, um, like formatting mishmash, um, which I didn't know anything about. I knew part of it was epistolary, um, but I didn't know the rest of it. And so it took me kind of a little while to get established in what I was reading, but, um, it's a fantastic book. I read it while I was at the hair salon because my haircuts usually take like three or four hours. Um, and so I read the whole thing in one sitting at the hair salon and was, had like my hair under one of those big, huge domed dryers and was just sobbing hysterically at one point in the book. So that was great. Um, but really, really excellent. Um, wonderful book. So I read that recently. Uh, before that, I had read um, The Epic Crush of Jeannie Lowe by F.C.E., which was so good and so funny and not funny. I feel like most of the time when I read funny books, I'm appreciating that they're funny in like an intellectual way where I'm like, oh, that was a funny line. And I kind of smiled to myself. I laughed out loud so hard when reading this book that I actually woke my husband up while he was sleeping next to me. It's so great and so good. And I loved it so much. So that was another one that I read. Um, I read The Last Magician by Lisa Maxwell, which I also thought was fantastic, a really big um, fantasy tome that was really great. What else have I read? I know there's more, but now we're starting to get back a couple weeks. <laughs> it's like my memory is not... Oh, what was the one? Um, they Both Die at the End? Mm. I read that, which was fantastic. Uh, I know I'm missing one, but I can't think of of what else. But lots of really good books that I've read recently that I really enjoyed. Oh, One Dark Throne by Kandir Blake, mm. which was the follow-up to Three Dark Crowns, uh, War Cross by Marie Lu, which I didn't know. I texted you when I read this. I, for I don't know why, because Marie always writes series. Every books of hers, they've all been series. She's never done a standalone, to my knowledge. But I don't know why I thought War Cross was a standalone, but I did. And so I was like, I'm going to read this book, and it's going to be great. And, and I got to the end, and I realized it was a series. And I was like... <laughs> I know because it ends on kind of cliffhangers. So you're like, oh no! Yeah. 
oh, it was so intense. And of course, there's some twisty things and some reveals. And I was patting myself on the back because I've talked on this podcast before about how I'm not really great at seeing those things on my first read through. And I was like, oh, I've got this figured out. I know what this twist is. And I was like half right, but not all the way right. And then the all the way part was like, oh, my God. (laughs) So that was fantastic. I loved that book. I thought that book was so much fun. It really is my favorite um, of Marie's books, honestly. Mm-hmm. I really, I I just, I love it. And just, it's so perfectly her, I think, encapsulated yeah. in a book form. And I, I, it is, it is my favorite thing she's ever written. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of really great books that I read, which has been exciting because I was in a rut for a long time there. Yeah. Um. I can't really say I've broken out of my rut very much. (laughs) Well, you've been very busy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I did finish the Princess Bride memoir. A lot of these are audiobooks. Oh, yeah. Because Mm -hmm. that's kind of what I do. Like, when when I wasn't working, I I was able to consume audiobooks, which um, is just delightful. Like I said, it's just Carrie Mm -hmm. Elwes kind of recounting the narrative of some kind of delightful stories of working on the princess bride. And, uh, it also has brief excerpts and interviews with various members of the cast and the director and all that sort of stuff. So it's just delightful. And Carrie Ellis himself just sounds like he's enjoying himself. So it just makes this like really, really nice read. Um, yeah. so that was, that was great. I also listened to, this is not light at all, which was what happened by Hillary Rodham Clinton. Oh, God. <laughs> I knew it was going to be a lot emotionally to deal with. Um, she also reads it. So I was just like, uh, at points I was just a wreck. Um, but I really, it, it gave me a lot of food for thought and it, you know and the last thing i wanted to do was rehash this election but i really it just gave me a lot to think about and so i, I thought that was pretty good i read oh i read the third diviners book before the devil mm. breaks you uh which i i feel kind of like i'm like in a fandom of two people and it's me and rosh because um, i love the diviners a lot uh, I love the Diviners, and I really do feel that these this series is incredibly underappreciated. Um, there are points, there were points when I was reading that book, and just some of it was just beautiful in its poetry, but also in its scope. I really do think that these are great American novels with capital letters. I really do. They are, they look at the history and the founding and what is the character of Americanness. Um, and it sounds lofty and pretentious, but it's not. They're extremely readable. They're filled with lovable characters. Um, I, there's a ship that I will go down with. I will go down with this ship. I was there. Were, I know I need to catch up. You so do I can need get to catch up. Yeah. Too. Um, and there were points where I was literally rolling on the floor, just clutching my chest in agony. <laughs> <laughs> I also listened to this one on audio because the diviners has a fantastic audiobook narrator, January Lavoie. She does incredible voices and she sings and she does all sorts. Of, and so she just creates this amazing soundscape for, for this world. Um, but, and so there were literally points where I'd be like, 
either cleaning my house or doing other errands. And like, I would have to stop and just like clutch at my heart and just like, just like, like roll on the floor and be like, ah, my feelings. Um, so I, I loved the diviners. I really did. I thought it was so excellent. Um, also read, uh, Warcross on audio and also I'm trying to think from the library I read, <laughs> I was in kind of a thriller mood, um, which sometimes I get if I, if I feel like I've been glutted on, um, YA. So I will sometimes mm. read other like nonfiction. I'll read other, other, other genres basically. And sometimes I wanted something like, um, let the right one in, which I don't know if you've read. It's a, I haven't, but I've heard of it. It's a very moody atmospheric. It's not a thriller actually, but it's a very moody atmospheric book set in Scandinavia. It's actually a vampire literary fiction, but it's really, really good. And so I wanted something that kind of put me in the same mood. So I was thinking I was of reading Joe Nesbo's Harry Hole books, and these are sort of moody Scandinavian thrillers, but none were available from my library, alas. So I read The Good Girl by Mary Kubica um, and Dan Brown's Inferno. (laughs) 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 Which was um, interesting. (laughs) I, I really actually enjoy the conceit of Dan Brown's books. They're kind of... Yeah. I love this idea of this professor of, I can't even remember what BS degree he does. So it's some, it's some ridiculous like social science. And I was like, really, is this really a thing? Anyway, professor of symbology at Harvard. That's what he is. And I was like, really, is this the thing? Anyway, I just love this idea that this is like a nerdy academic Indiana Jones this is essentially what these books are. Um, mm-hmm. but the writing is so stilted and bad. It really makes it kind of awkward to read. And I love these books as movies, actually. I really enjoy the movies, mm. but I just, I couldn't, I did read Inferno, I did read Inferno, but I was like, this is really awkward to get through. It's really difficult. <laughs> um, oh, and I read The Language of Thorns. Um, oh, yes. By Lee Bardugo, which they're, they're excellent. I mean, Lee is a, is a great writer. Full disclosure, I did beta read one of them, When Water Sang Fire, which is like her twisted little mermaid story um for music references which I loved when I read it then um but all the others they're all what I love mm. about Lee's fairy tales is that they're recognizably fairy tales that we know but they're all just there's a tweak or a twist to them that just makes them haunting and different um mm. so they're all fantastic so I highly recommend the language of thorns I'm so excited for her adult novel. Oh, yeah. The one about the secret societies in college and stuff. I'm so excited. I'm excited. (laughs) And I'm also excited for the Nikolai books because he's my husband. So, (laughs) 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 Um, so I guess I did read a lot more than I expected over the break. It didn't feel like a lot, but I think because a lot of it was on audio that I kind of felt like it wasn't. But so, all right, then what are we working on? I um, can't tell you what I'm working on. <laughs> I can tell you right. later, yeah. but I can't. Off, off the I air. I cannot <laughs> tell the podcast yet. And um, 
this is the weird part about publishing where even when you don't have in for sure solid news yet, sometimes you have like the beginnings of maybe news that could still fall through, which is what I have. Um, but you can't talk about it. You can't talk about anything in publishing until it's like officially announced and dusted, you know? So that's, but so this is a new experience for me because I like talking and so I'm not really able to talk about some stuff. So that's hard, but I am working on something with a client and it's exciting and we'll see what happens with that. <laughs> what about you? Vague casting. <laughs> Yay. Um, I am working obviously on Shadow Song First Pass, which it's a little bit of a tight turnaround, but it's kind of nice to be able to read this book and be like, oh, it's not terrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I think there is a point in every, I mean, obviously second books are just tough in general, but there, I think there is a point in every book. And I certainly felt this with winter song where I was like, if I read this book one more time, I will scream. You just get tired of it. Cause you end up reading your book so many times before it goes to print. And I have not read shadow song quite as many times as winter song, partially because the, the writing publication period is shorter just by necessity, because I, Winter Song from acquisition to publication was almost two years. So, you know, that's that's a a long long time. time. Whereas this one from basically acquisition to publication is about a year. So it's not, it's not even been a, it's about, it's been about a year, I guess. So it's, um, so it's a bit shorter. So I didn't quite have as many times and the whole writing process of it. I think I've talked about it here on this podcast and I've certainly talked about it to Kelly where I was just like, this book is hard and I don't like it. And I, the writing that, you know, it just, it's exhausting and wearying. And this book is also incredibly personal in a way that I did not expect it to be. So there were a lot of emotions tied up with this book that by the time I turned in my final draft to my editor, I was like, I don't want to read it anymore. Uh, <laughs> Copy edits came in and I just very perfunctorily went through copy edits, made sure that, you know, the sun didn't set twice on the same day and like, you know, that all the details were consistent and that my grammatically, you know, all the things that they pointed out were fixed, like all that sort of stuff, but didn't actually read the book again. But I don't do that for first pass. For first pass, I always do read aloud because to me, this is absolutely key. But for a while, my feelings towards Shadow Song were very much like, if like if if your manuscript were children, like, you know, if Shadow Song was like, "Hey, do you love me?" I would I'd be like, "I'm proud of you." <laughs> but do you love me? And... I, I'm proud of you. <laughs> um, and I am. I was very. I was impr- I was very proud of the work that I'd done for this book. Um. But like reading it again after having some distance, I was like, oh, I like it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's not a bad book. It's, you know, it's not that I ever thought it was a bad book. It's just that I just didn't have the emotional capacity to like it. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been kind of an enjoyable experience. Also, once these are in, I will start drafting in earnest the first book in the my next series, which had been announced. I don't know if we were announcing it on the podcast. I don't even remember what we talked about. Like, I don't remember either. It's been millennia. I know. <laughs> it's been about 25 but years. It, your trip to Asia must have been so fantastic for getting you in that mindset. Yes, it was fantastic. It was I, I went partially for historical reasons, um, 
my version of fantasy Asia is not a one-to-one correlation. So I wouldn't actually call it like specifically a Chinese fantasy or specifically Korean or Japanese or whatever. Um, it is in fact an Asian fantasy, Asian inspired, but I was drawing a lot of influence from sort of a southernish region of China for this first book. And uh, so I went to Shanghai and some surrounding water towns of Shanghai, Suzhou and Zhejiang. And so I, it was really just cool uh, because I actually I'd been to Beijing before and Beijing is actually culturally quite different from Shanghai. So that was kind of cool to see and sort of make mental notes. And, you know, I think there are other things that you get via travel that you don't necessarily get from books. I think that you can get smells, sights, sounds, but just more of a cultural feel than rather just rather than sort of trying to absorb that through books or Wikipedia articles as may as the case may be for a lot of us. Um so that was cool. Um and I was very eager to start writing, but the one thing that I don't have yet, which I'm sure will come to me at some in- inconvenient time when I don't have time to write it down, is the first line. And which is always how you start. It's always how I start. So I, this one's a little bit different because I wrote a proposal for Guardians. I wrote a series, a world building Bible for my editor, which was fairly detailed actually about the, you know, the world, the cosmology, all that sort of stuff. And I actually wrote like a 60, 6,200 word synopsis for the first book. <laughs> Um, which was kind of me just sort of telling myself the story. So in this case, I have a bit more of a detailed blueprint to write from story-wise than I did for Shadow Song, which was just me flailing around going, help, I'm drowning. Uh, so it's a little bit different, but I, I don't have a first line yet. So, but I'm sure it's going to come to me while I'm driving to Yalfest tomorrow or something. And I'm gonna be like, darn it. <laughs> Probably. Like, Gah. so yeah, that's what I'm working on. So, uh, all right. So then off menu recommendations, do we have any, I feel like I must. Oh, okay. Um, again, lots of TV for me cause that's kind of what I do in my spare time. But, um, I started watching the good place. Oh, I've heard good things about it. It's incredible. <laughs> I, I'm not a sitcom person generally. I've never really liked them. They they're just they're too short and they're too stagnant. There's really no major character development over time. It's kind of like I feel like with a lot of sitcoms everything resets every episode and we never really get any lasting change. So I get bored and they're not my jam. There's a couple that I really like, like Kimmy Schmidt, I think is great, and a couple of others. Um, but when people started talking about The Good Place, I was like, Meh, it's not really my deal. I'm not really going to watch it. Um, I love Kristen Bell, though, a lot. And I identify deeply with her video when she's crying over the sloth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, September 1st was my wedding anniversary and my husband and I, um, had my daughter stay at my mother-in-law's house and we went up to Stillwater, this little river town, and we got a bed and breakfast and, um, we got way, 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 way too drunk. And the morning after our anniversary, I was hungover and I don't get hungover anymore because I can't handle my alcohol the way I used to be able to. So I just stop at two drinks. I just don't drink that much anymore. And we woke up the next morning and I told my husband, I was like, oh, I'm hungover. 
And he just thought I was like, just not feeling well. And I was like, no, I can't leave the bed. Like the room is spinning. I cannot stand up. We just have to stay here until checkout. And I'm just going to lie here and moan and and not do anything. So I needed something to distract me. So I had my laptop and I was like, I'm just going to put on something on Netflix. I saw the good place. I put it on and I didn't stop until all 10 episodes were done. (laughs) I just watched all 10 episodes while hungover on my, um, anniversary it's great and nobody can explain what is so great about it because it will ruin it okay there's a huge twist and nobody can even begin to talk about what it is but it's funny and clever in a way that I think I haven't seen TV be genuinely funny or clever in a long time. I do tend to laugh out loud when I watch it. Um, I think the performances are great. Ted Danson is in it and I kind of forgot about him as like a person, but he's excellent (laughs) in this. And it's just, it's short enough that it's like, it's like the 25 minute, you know, sitcom episodes and there's only 10. And so you can just plow through it really easily and, I highly recommend it. It's a great, great show. So The Good Place is definitely one of them. Um, We are in the middle of catching up on the second season of Stranger Things. I'm not done yet, but my husband and I are watching that, and it's really excellent. So that's great. When did you watch the first Um, Stranger Things? I feel like I've been trying to convince you, and then you just sort of, like, were worried about the horror aspects. (laughs) I was. I was. I think we ended up watching it. It was a year ago, but it was probably like maybe two or three months after it had come out. Um, Everybody had seen it before me. I was really one of the the holdouts. And of course, it was excellent. So so I'm excited about that. I have not been spoiled, but I do know that Steve is going to get even more awesome um, because all anybody is talking about on Twitter is how wonderful Steve is. And to be fair, (laughs) I've kind of loved Steve since the first season. (laughs) I have always loved Steve, too. I loved Nancy in season one, and even though Steve was a jerk, he was also, like, kind really? of awesome. He's also, a, like, a really, like, realistic jerk. Yes. Like, I know that guy. Very realistic teenage boy, yes. I know yes, that yes. guy. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I also loved how the first the season of- ended with him and Nancy, and I just mm-hmm. thought it was great. <laughs> So fantastic. I loved it. So I'm in the middle of that and hopefully going to finish that soon. I've talked before on this podcast about Halt and Catch Fire, so I won't go through my whole big spiel again. Um, But it is over now. The series has ended. The last three episodes were possibly the greatest episodes of television I've ever seen in my life of anything. Um, The third to last episode is the most I have ever cried at any TV show or movie ever, which is saying a lot because I cry at a lot of things. But I, I was like, I was like catatonic. It was like those noisy sobs mm. where like, it was like loud and heaving and then and extended well beyond the show was over. And David was like, are you going to be okay? And I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> um, and then the finale just gave me everything that I wanted, which is so rare, I feel like, for me to get everything that I want, because I'm very picky. Um, So you've heard me talk about that before. I won't go too far into it, but it ended, and it ended beautifully, and I loved that show. And I think that might be everything. What about you? Well, if you follow me on Twitter, you kind of see me tentatively live-tweeting my playthrough of Dragon Age Inquisition. 
you have become a video game person, which I love. <laughs> um, I knew you had it in you. I am like always in, in theory. I was always I could always had the potential to be a video game person. But what I hate about video games are video game mechanics. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically, if, if yeah. I if I had the actual like, playing of the game, yeah, the actual <laughs> playing of the game, I don't like. I like experiencing a game. I just don't like playing a game, which is why I liked games like Life is Strange and Oxenfree, because those are all games that are decision based, the way a lot of games are, but not they don't require you to fight stuff. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which just irritates me. <laughs> and it takes so long. Yeah, and battles like, take forever. Battles take forever, and you know, blah blah blah. But um, so I've been kind of. I just like after I turned in my revisions for Shadow Song, I was kind of like, I really don't know if I have the emotional bandwidth to, you know, take up a new TV show that like take you know like mm-hmm. to get emotionally invested in, or if I could really read anything at that point. So I said. I, what I've actually really wanted that I'm still hoping will be made someday is basically the Sims in the Harry Potter universe. Yeah. That's basically what I want. <laughs> I'm still hopeful that wanna somebody... Wanna be a wizard. Yeah, I just want to be a wizard. I want to go to Hogwarts. I want to go to class. Like, that's just what I want to do. Um, but the Sims... So I kind of asked if there was, like, a Sims game, but fantasy-based, and people were kind of throwing suggestions out left and right. And two kept coming up, which was Dragon Age, Inquisition and um, Skyrim. So the only reason I played Dragon Age first was because I was able to buy it immediately for my PS3 because um, I could just download it from the PlayStation Store. As In Skyrim, I had to buy as a disc. So that was really the only reason that I got to, d- uh, to Dragon Age first. Um, and I really... They were just like... It was, it was nice. And weirdly, it... There, I mean, there, I know of, I know the reasons why I got into this game was because I liked managing the relationships. Oddly enough, the story I could kind of live and live. I the story's fine. Yeah. Like I didn't particularly get invested in the story the way I had gotten invested in the story in, like, say, The Last of Us. I don't know if you've heard of that game or played that game. I I never played no. The Last of Us, but I basically watched uh, Mark play through the whole thing and was just like riveted <laughs> to the whole experience of him playing this game. Um, but I set Dragon Age on easy, so basically, which which meant that I couldn't really lose. Yeah. So like I uh, set it on easy, um, and what I really enjoyed in this game because this was the first game I've ever played where you had romance and friendship scores. So I really liked this sort of managing relationships part of this game. Um, Mm -hmm. And it got me really invested in all the characters, not just the character that you're playing as, but just like all the other characters. And so now I'm already kind of like, so I finished Dragon Age and I'm already contemplating another playthrough as a different character so I could romance someone else. Yeah, you can change. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the thing about Dragon Age that I think the the romance mechanics in particular of this game are pretty sophisticated in that depending on who you play as. So in my case, I played as a female human rogue. Um, and that actually limited the choices of characters that I could romance. Some of the characters are bisexual in the game. Some are not. Some are gay. Um, and as you 
play this game and as you go through and you start to know all these characters, you know, you can choose to flirt with him. You can choose to do whatever you want. And ultimately, I ended up romancing Cullen this time around, which I don't necessarily regret, although I was slightly scarred by the romance, the actual, like, sex scene in it. I was like, I I did not need to see that. Because it was just like this awkward, awkward, awkward. It's so awkward because the actual character of Cullen is very, he is awkward. And so it makes flirting with him kind of funny because every time you do, he gets all flustered. Um, and so it gets to the point where you have to choose to enter a relationship with Cullen. I said, sure. And it gets, you know, it gets very romantic and hot and heavy. And then like it cuts to like a morning after scene and my character is fully dressed, but he is not. And it's like the camera and everything is always strategically placed in such a way so he's never fully naked, but it makes it worse. And so you're just like, hmm. And that's an uncanny valley that I did not need to need to go down at all. We didn't need the visuals on that. No, no. I was fine with it fading to black, to be honest. It was fine. Um so, but there is a character that I really love in this particular game, Dorian. Dorian is gay, and I was like, God, next time I'm playing as a male character, just so I can romance him. He's, I love him so much. Um, but it's it's also not only do romance scores matter, but your friendship scores matter. So you can mm-hmm. do things, and other characters in the game approve of what you do or don't approve of what you do. So, um, I just, I really, really, really liked that aspect of it. So that was what I was enjoying. I don't think Skyrim is quite like that, but I think I will try Skyrim next as my next game. Um, possibly go back and play the other Dragon Age games just to see. Um, yeah. cause I know some of the characters do come back. Um, uh, I know that mm-hmm. Morrigan and Leliana are in Origins, and they also mm-hmm. show up in Inquisition, so I can kind of, it's kind of like reading the third book in a series and going and read the first one, but whatever. That's fine. So that was that. I watched a lot of movies on the plane, because that is kind of the only time I ever watch movies anymore. So, uh-huh. uh, on the way to Asia, I watched King Arthur Legend of the Sword which my friends fondly call Trash King Arthur because it's trash, but it is the most (laughs) enjoyable. It is so... It's so over the top. So it's actually a Guy Ritchie movie. So it's basically... Oh, yeah. It's a Guy Ritchie movie, but about King Arthur. So it's all the stuff you expect in a Guy Ritchie movie, but with King Arthur. And it plays absolutely fast and loose with history and Arthurian legend and everything, and I didn't care. And this is somebody who actually is really kind of picky about Arthur retellings. Um, But I was like, this is... It's so over-the-top ridiculous. Jude Law plays the bad guy in it, and he's young poping it all over the place. They're just... (laughs) And I'm just like, what even is this movie? But it's so enjoyable. So I highly recommend uh, King Arthur Legend of the Sword. I also watched, this is actually a Korean film called The King's Case Note. And it's basically Sherlock in 15th century Korea. (laughs) And uh, like the TV show Sherlock, but not bad because Sherlock as a TV show is terrible. Um, But it, it involves this king and there are plots to overthrow him, and the science and the 
and the magic in this world is also like, mm, historically, I don't think this is quite not quite it. But it was just really funny and it was enjoyable. And you had kind of like a character who plays sort of like a Sherlock Holmesian sort of character and then his his Watson-like sidekick. Uh, so that was really funny and enjoyable and I enjoyed that. And yesterday I saw Thor Ragnarok, uh, which I loved. <laughs> Thor. Ha- I've heard great things about it. Thor is actually the only one of the Marvel superhero standalone movies that I've actually seen all of them in the theater. I only ever catch up on the other ones on planes. <laughs> so, like, I watched Civil War on the plane. I've watched both Avengers movies on the plane. I've watched Iron Man on the plane. And Spy. Oh, that was one other movie I saw on the plane with Spider Man Homecoming, which was delightful. Um, I heard it was great, too. I, I, I think you would really like Spider-Man Homecoming. It is, it's a Spider-Man movie, but it's also just kind of a teen movie. Yeah. And the kid who plays Peter Parker is great. He's he's so just lovable and, and really, I think, actually embodies the character in, the way, in a way that I don't think the other two actors ever did. So I thought that was great. But Thor Ragnarok, so... I don't know if you know who Taika Waititi is. The name is familiar, and I bet if you showed me a picture, I would know, but off the top of my head, no. He is a New Zealand Maori director, actually, and he is pretty well known for um, his partnership with Jermaine Clement in Flight of the Concords. Mm-hmm. He also yep. did um, the movie's boy, what we do in the shadows and hunt for the wilder people. And I've actually seen everything he's ever done because I think Taika Waititi is a genius. And it was funny because I watched Thor and this movie is totally different from every other Thor movie, but it works. Um, and it really felt more like a Taika Waititi movie than it actually felt like a Marvel movie. Um, but I really, really liked it. It was funny. Jeff Goldblum is in it playing the most Jeff Goldblum of Goldblum roles. Like, it is the most Jeff Goldblum I've ever seen. He's, like, aged into the most distilled version of himself. It's, he really has. He really has. Just He just becomes more Jeff Goldblum with age, I think. Uh, and it suits it's like him. like a fine wine. Like a fine wine. It suits him. Because I never really found him that attractive when he was younger. But now it's like... But now? He's, he's grown, yeah. he's grown up pretty... <laughs> he's grown into himself. Um, that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be discussing uh, conferences and panels. So this is, I guess, more of an our author life series, but we're just trying to get back into the swing of things with topics that are actually kind of like sort of on the forefront of our brains. So mm-hmm. we'll be author. <laughs> it will be conferences and panels. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review and you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com. 
Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Goman, author of Retribution, Va- Retribution Rails, available now. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.